0: Hello, and welcome to this week's edition of the Provcast. My name is Court, and once again, I'm coming to you from Bishkek, Kyrgyzstan, as I wait out the last couple of weeks to finalize the adoption of our daughter uh, by the grace of God. Uh, Again, I just want to say thanks. Thanks so much to everybody who's um, been so faithful to encourage my wife and I personally, and uh, and for those of you who've been praying with us um, during this entire process, uh, I can't wait to be able to share more about the experience and celebrate with everyone, uh, hopefully very, very soon. So just wanted to say thank you for that. Um, This week, I wanted to dive into a topic that uh, I developed as I've been uh, journaling and reading every day. Uh, I haven't had a a ton of time to uh, do much of anything else. Um, (laughs) I haven't had a ton to do without my family with me. Uh, And obviously with a language deficiency, not knowing Russian, uh, I've been mostly consigned to just my apartment. And so uh, it hasn't been all that fun, but one benefit has been that I can read some more. And so in my Bible reading time, particularly, I have been reading uh, some of the Old Testament narrative literature. And this week I finished up the book of Judges. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with the book of Judges, um, it's the seventh book in in your Bible, starting at Genesis. uh, And it contains the story of the children of Israel uh, after Joshua conquers the promised land. Uh, that was uh, promised to his forefathers and given to him by God. So you, you remember here that you know Moses carries the children of Israel out of Egypt and out of uh, Egyptian bondage and go into the to the Promised Land. And, you know one generation uh, basically dies off because of their unbelief. You know their Joshua is really a book of victory because we're the former generation uh, that's recorded uh, in the books of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. This former generation failed to believe God and trust Him for the promise uh, of victory. You know Joshua's generation, with a couple of notable exceptions, they they do actually trust God and they and they acquire the land of promise. And through a series of significant and sometimes you know very odd military victories, uh, they actually get the the promised land. Um, I mean, I say odd military victories because there's just some there is just some really crazy and weird stuff that happens. Um, In the book of Joshua, you know, most of you know about the story of Jericho, you know, where there's this big, massive fortified city that uh, the children of Israel are called by God to go and take. And how are they going to get in? And basically they get in by all marching around the city for seven straight days in silence. And then on the seventh day, the. The band gets out there and they all blow their horns and scream and all the walls come down. Um, you know, I have a charismatic background. So there were songs about this where, you know, walls of Jericho coming down and people get pretty nutty with their tambourines. So um, anyways, you know, Joshua was kind of full of this, you know, and, and full of these kinds of stories. God giving victory to the children of Israel. And then one of the most significant moments in the book of Joshua comes at the end as Joshua gathers all the children of Israel to himself. And then he rereads the covenant. That God had given to Moses. He, re- he rereads it word for word over them. Um, and then he famously tells the children of Israel, just like Moses did. Um, hey, you have a choice now between obedience and faithfulness to God, which will lead to life or to disobedience and idolatry that will lead to death. Um, and he says, listen, I'm guiltless of, of this decision. Whatever you make, you make. It's no longer on my hands because I've told you what will happen if you, if you walk in this kind of disobedience. And the children of Israel all say, listen, we will follow faithfully after God. And they make this you know, covenant once again, kind of re-upping the covenant. And then you know, there's this famous line that, that Joshua gives. You know, most of you know, or many of you might even know this by hearts, probably over your mantle. He says you know, this, quote, choose you this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And, and, and this is Joshua, you know, basically kind of drawing a line in the sand. And, and, and earlier in this chapter, he makes a clear distinction between what it looks like for Israel to serve their God uh, or what the paganism of the, the neighboring nations uh, believe about serving gods, uh, little g-gods. So you see, the God of Israel, Joshua says, isn't served by human hands. He doesn't need anything from anybody else Israel's God cannot benefit from human service because He's the eternal I Am. Uh, but Israel will serve their God through loving and obedient hearts. It's, it's really about this uh, covenant faithfulness uh, to their God and their hearts that will result in this obedient action. And listen, the book of Joshua ends on kind of a promising note. The Bible records that the children of Israel uh, did, in fact, faithfully serve the Lord all the days of Joshua. And so... Um, then comes the book of Judges. So I just gave you Joshua, just kind of give you a little bit of you know, insight into what's happening in Judges. Because the book of Judges then picks up where Joshua left off. It's a really intense and intriguing book. I would encourage any person to read it. Particularly if you're a Christian listening to this, I would encourage you to read the book of Judges. It's chocked full of amazing stories of failure and redemption and human arrogance, human humiliation. And most of all, God's heart to rescue man in the midst of all of that and man's intent to really screw it up. Like just, you know, judges is this book that just gives us this inclination that we really like to screw things up. We really like to, uh, to take something that's good and just and just <laughs> completely ruin it. Um, and there's this one theme that runs throughout the book of judges uh, that I really want to focus on in this episode uh, because it, it, it gives the reader um, some understanding into this cycle uh, not just the cycle that we get in a snapshot in the book of Judges, but really a cycle of humanity. And and the reader is kind of given this right out of the gates. So the book starts, the book of Judges starts by recapping and giving us some insight into the failure of the children of Israel to complete the conquest after Joshua. So they're told by God, hey, finish off claiming the land, and they fail to do so. They just disobey God, and they they don't actually claim the land. They leave all of these neighboring nations. And God basically says, you're not going to have rest now. These neighboring nations are going to war with you. Um, And then although the the generation uh, that lived in the time of Joshua does actually serve God, the Bible records that, quote, in chapter two, there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that God had done for Israel. And this is intriguing, right? It's like Okay, a couple of things, like, if you read through the narrative, it's like, there's so much that Joshua and Moses try to do to make sure the next generation don't forget this stuff. It's like, A, like, what happened to the stones of remembrance? If you, you know, there's this, there's this line in Joshua, and it's this kind of handing of the torch from Moses to Joshua. As soon as Joshua brings the children of Israel over the River Jordan, they set up these massive stones of remembrance, and they basically say, these... Uh, stones are going to stay here forever to remind all of our kids so that no one will ever forget their kids, 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 kids. We'll never forget what God has done for us. You know, that's my first question. Like, what happened to that? I thought that was supposed to be like a really, a really good plan. Um, and then B, like, where did the parenting go wrong here? You know, like at Providence, you know, our children's ministry, we, we often quote Deuteronomy where, it talk, where God tells Moses to tell the children of Israel that they need to Uh, commit themselves to teaching their children uh, the ways of the Lord, and that this was a command from God, hey, you need to raise your kids. And I just can't help but think, man, how did this generation simultaneously serve the Lord and then completely botch it when it was time for them to, you know, tell their kids to serve the Lord? But nonetheless, you know, this statement is then followed up in verse 11 of chapter 2 in Judges with this idea, quote, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and in, in this, this section will go on to say they served the Baals. They abandoned the Lord. They went after other gods. And this angered the Lord their God. So God's anger is kindled against the children of Israel because they basically just do what is evil and abandon God. About I, I, I probably should have looked this up before I started this uh, recording, but a number of times in the book of Judges, there's this one line that continues to uh, be circulated. And it's, it's the theme that's consistent throughout. It's basically that... There was no king in the days of the Judges, and so every man did what was right in his own eyes. Basically, Judges is this book that is marked by human beings deciding their own morality on the basis of their own human reason or what seems good to them. And what ends up happening is really, really bad stuff. I mean, really bad stuff. So from this moment on, the children of Israel are going to go through this cycle in the book of Judges. It's going to basically happen like this. God's going to raise up a redeemer. So let's just start with Moses. He raises up a redeemer. God's going to rescue the children of Israel from their hardship, from their slavery, from their suffering. The people are going to worship and recommit themselves to to a covenant with God. There's going to be a generation that experiences peace and prosperity. It varies 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. Sometimes it'll be over 100 years. But there's this generation that is, is going to experience peace. And then at some point, another generation is going to arise and they're going to abandon God and begin to worship idols. And that generation is going to be given over to slavery by their neighbor, neighboring countries, either giving themselves over to slavery or God allowing them to be given or God sending this another nation to enslave the children of Israel as a punishment. Then the people are going to cry out to God and then God raises up a redeemer and rents and repeat. This is the cycle that happens. It's the cycle that repeats itself a number of times. I counted them. You could maybe make the case for seven or eight times in the book of Judges. This happens. And the theme is consistent throughout. There's no king in the land, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Now, I want to talk about this one line because it draws so many amazing parallels to our current cultural climate. And what we can learn as Christians from the book of Judges as we look out at the landscape of our culture. I want to give you two major observations that I took from the book of Judges and then maybe try to parse out some, some cultural implications along with that. Number one, first observation. Without objective truth that is determined by God, anarchy or tyranny are the only two options. I'll say that again. Without objective truth determined by God, anarchy or tyranny are the only two options. So, in the book of Judges, there are really only three ways of living that Israel experiences on a loop. The starting line is always living under God's authority, so objective truth according to objective absolute truth. And this always leads to peace and life, which is the promise, right? This is the promise that God gave the children of Israel, and it's the promise that has carried forth ever since this time. There's this living under God's authority according to God's objective truth leads to human flourishing. Then, there's the second phase in the book of Judges. It's a rejection of God for various other little g-gods, idolatry. And it ultimately leads to anarchy. Or, as the book of Judges puts it, everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And and you get stories like uh, Judges 19, I believe it is. Uh, which, listen to me, Judges 19, I, I believe it's Judges 19, but the last story in the book of Judges is the... It's one of, if not the most disgusting stories in the entire Old Testament. I'll briefly tell you what what occurs here, only because I think it really underscores just how badly anarchy goes whenever you abandon objective truth, absolute truth given uh, through revelation by God. So Judges 19 is this story about a Levite, which is supposed to be a priest. Um, And once again, this is all under the framework of everybody just basically deciding on their own morality. Um... This Levite takes a concubine for himself. So first problem, right? It's not his wife, but it's a girl that he is enjoying the you know, indulgences of what a covenant of marriage might look like without having to have that. And it's some like concubine you know, in the Old Testament's like this like pseudo commitments. Like this guy would be upset if his concubine were to be with anyone else. Uh, but he's not willing to commit to her as a wife. It's just it's, it's very uh, dark. And anyway, he takes this concubine and uh, they end up traveling. Uh, after I think five or six nights, you know they had they had an argument. His concubine went back to her father's house. This Levite goes back to the father's house and basically uh, apologizes to his concubine. And then the father of the concubine continues to encourage this Levite. Come on, stay another night. Stay another night. Please don't go. After five or six nights of being with his, I guess pseudo in laws, this Levite's like, no, I'm not staying another night. We're leaving. And and the father's like, come on, you don't need to be leaving at night. It's dangerous. You know, don't we walking around at night if you travel now? It's going to be dangerous. And. Th- this should immediately tip you off on what's happening in the book of Judges. When objective truth goes away, you know, just walking around or traveling can be very dangerous because everyone does what's right in their own eyes. There's no objective morality. Now you're going to see how bad this gets. So Levite's like, no, I'm not staying with you anymore. Come on. He grabs his concubine and they go. Uh, They're passing up a I believe it's a Moabite city or a Gibeonite city. And his concubine says, hey, let's go in for the night. It's getting dark. It's, it's getting dangerous. Let's just, let's just stay here. And the Levite, knowing that, you know, listen, when there's no objective morality or truth, I can't trust that I'm going to go into this foreign nation uh, and they're not just going to kill me because I'm a foreigner. So he says, let's go on. We're going to go to our one of our own cities. He makes it to an Israelite city. And he's he and his concubine late at night are basically sitting out in the, in the public square because no one, once again, will show them hospitality because, once again, everyone does what is right in their own eyes. So no one will let them stay with them until this old man comes. And I love this story because it tells you that there is something about age that lends itself to empathy, lends itself to um, more wisdom. The old man shows up um, and he says, hey you need to get out of the public square. I don't care. Let just come into my house. I'll feed you. Just, you got to get out of here because it could go bad for you. And so the old man takes him in and, um, and they're, it says they're eating, and they're drinking, and they're merry hearts, and then here comes the knocks on the doors. And this this is uh, akin to the Sodom and Gomorrah story, uh, where there's these men who are knocking on the door, and, and they want to lay with the the angels that showed up to, to warn Lot that the city was going to be destroyed. It's similar to this in that these, the men of the city, and the Bible, I think, actually calls them worthless men, basically get together and say, hey, we saw this pretty girl and this guy. Uh, And they're not from here. And they're beating on the door, telling the old man, let them come out that we might know them. Now, this is uh, biblical speak for they basically want to have sex with uh, this couple uh, and rape them. Um, And so they they think that because, once again, everyone does what's right in their own eyes, that they're entitled to this. Now, this is where the story just begins to devolve worse and worse and worse. Because if you thought that the old man was a good guy, which I did as he first started reading then it just starts to get miserable because the older man says, no, don't do this to this man. Focuses on the man. Uh, Once again, and in an evil culture that has just gone awry, he says, I'll send out my virgin daughter and there's a concubine here and you could do whatever you want to them. But just don't shame this man by raping him. Now, first of all, you read that and you're just like, how disgusting is this guy now? You know, it's like, what happened to, you no, know, we'll stand up and fight to the bitter end for protecting, you know, the women and the children. No, of course not. He's going to send these women out and do what you want with them, even my own daughter, but don't do it to this guy. So you think, wow, how disgusting. And then once again, it degrades even worse because the, the, the mob outside says, no, we want them all. And so now what happens in the story? Well, they take the concubine and they basically quickly open the door, shove her out into the harm's way and lock the door behind her. And this woman, the, the book of Judges says, and please forgive me for this, might even have to put explicit on the, the podcast title because of how evil this is. She is uh, abused all night long. I'll put it like that. And left at the front door of this old man. And in the morning, when the Levite, the priest, sky, this, this joke, uh, opens his door, he sees this woman completely unconscious, uh, laying at the at the doorstep. She ends up being dead. They ended up uh, abusing, sexually abusing this woman all night long and killing her. Once again. When human beings do what's right in their own eyes, and everyone does what's right in their own eyes, and there's no objective, truth, or morality, or, or authority, this is what anarchy creates. Now, the story goes on to say, and then this man, uh, this, you know, this Levite goes to his house, he cuts this woman's body up in a, a number of parts and sends them to the, all the tribes of Israel in order to stir up outrage. Now, by common grace, the grace of God, these Israelites are outraged by this moment. And there's a war that starts because of what they did to this woman. But you can't help but feel like, wow, there's enough disgusting to go around in this story, isn't there? And, 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 and this is kind of the point of the book of Judges is ultimately, when, without the objective truth that's given by God, anarchy reigns. Now, why is it that anarchy always leads to tyranny? Well, first of all, anarchy reigns because everybody's committed to, quote, my truth. Now, I want you to think about that when you think about our culture, right? Everybody commits themselves to their own personal truth. When there's no objective truth, you do my truth. And my truth never works because what if my truth is to punch you in the face because it makes me feel better? Well, then that's not going to line up with your truth, which is to stay safe from me punching you in the face, right? And this never works, but nonetheless, our culture's committed ourselves to this. We've committed our children over to it. It's, It's weird and grotesque. But the third phase always leads to tyranny. Why? Well, in this story in particular, you know, the book of Judges ends after this. But if you go back to the other stories, whenever there's these anarchy and people going crazy, it always leads to tyranny of enslavement. And the reason for this is because anarchy can't last. Human beings were naturally created to live in order. And so when we reject God and absolute truth, revelation from God, the strong man will always come in to reign. So, For Israel, they're always enslaved by tyrannical leaders who use power to enforce, quote, their truth. Um, And tyranny is always the result of anarchy because anarchy places the emphasis on power over truth. You can see this in our culture. We focus more on power than truth. People in power deciding what is true. uh, And therefore, the most powerful in the end decide on the truth. And another way of looking at this is that when we choose to value power over truth, we set ourselves up for enslavement. Because in the end, strength matters more than objective reality. And the third phase for Israel always leads to crying out to God. And and in so doing, they re-recognize God alone as ultimate authority. Uh, it's interesting to see that when we deny God's ultimate authority, we will do this until we're under the thumb of tyranny, and then we go back to our senses, right? This happens uh, oftentimes. You can see this, I think, then, what is it, the the mantra that says there are no atheists in foxholes, right? It's like in times of war, everybody's praying and asking for God to help uh, because suffering has a way of bringing you back to your senses. But our culture mirrors Israel in the time of Judges, uh, this this you live your truth mentality, which rules in our societies. We teach it to our kids um, every day by letting celebrities reinforce this idea to live your truth Um we see this in gender, right? Like living your truth could mean rejecting outright your gender from birth. Um, our culture rejects ultimate objective truth ultimately because our culture rejects God. Um, and and what every generation never expects is that the next generation might just live in a way that's consistent um, with that rejection. You know, like as parents, we... we sometimes forget, just like the children of Israel, that, hey, if we allow this kind of live your truth thing, what if people actually take that to its eventual end? That could lead to some bad stuff. Like if a generation has rejected God and objective truth, then what keeps that generation from doing whatever they want? And I mean, whatever they want. I mean, it is, after all, true for them, right? <laughs> and the answer is nothing keeps a generation from doing that. And what ensues is chaos. But, but, but of course, chaos can't last, right? Right. Like, every, every man for himself works for, like, 0.2 seconds until tribes form. We even see this, like, on the playground with kids. It's like you can send people out there to be every man for themselves, but immediately start uh, forming, tr- forming groups of teams. Uh, a perfect literary example of this would be, like, the Hunger Games, right, where, you know, they send all these ba- basically kids into this arena where everybody can lustily watch as they kill each other. And very quickly... Uh, what happens is they form teams against each other because trying to do it alone uh, is no good when power is the commodity at hand. You have more power in numbers, so you form, so you form tribes, even if you know that in the end you're going to have to abandon those tribes to win. Um, so once the tribes form culturally, the rejection of God and objective reality means that, uh, hey, only the strong are going to prevail. And so if the strong prevail, then they ultimately get to become the arbiters for truth. And I just want to mention this because how interesting is it? Have you ever noticed that the people who are such ardent defenders of subjective truth or subjective morality are often the first ones to tell you that you have to believe what they say or else you will be perpetually shamed? It's interesting, isn't it? It's like the whole "live your truth" crowd is often the ones who do the most shaming if you don't agree with whatever it is that they th- that they say. But this totally follows the Book of Judges, and it also follows history. Here's an example: like when we consider like Hitler and Nazi Germany in the Second World War, uh, we often wonder how an entire group of people could be so deceived uh, into believing that it was okay to exterminate an entire. Uh, race of people. Like, who in the world thinks that's okay? But, but if you read the Book of Judges, it totally follows the pattern. Like, once you have conceded that truth is not objective, then the powerful get to decide what is true. And then it's really easy to make the jump to something like Nazism. Why? Because the party controls truth with a capital T. So like the propaganda minister for the Nazi party, I think his name was like Joseph Goebbels, He was famous for saying, listen, truth is whatever I get, whatever I tell people long enough over and over and over again that it is. If I tell someone that something is true long enough and over and over and over again, it eventually is true because the party decides, power decides. Now, what does this mean for us as we look at judges and we look at our own culture, kind of abandoning the idea of objective truth? Well, from a Christian worldview, we should think... um, this manifests itself, not just in the past, but in the present, and not just in the political sphere. Like it's not inherently a political consideration. It's a theological one. I want to make that abundantly clear. This is a theological consideration. Christians must know and teach their children to be confident that they can know that objective truth is a reality and that reality is found in God alone. That is so important. If we abandon this point, we're we are ab- abandoning something that's so foundational. Um, G.K. Chesterton uh, had this quote, and it's one, it's a very insightful um, quote. He says that there is no thought that should be stopped. In other words, he he believed that in the end we shouldn't we shouldn't try to have the thought police, you know, that tell people what they can think and what they can't think. He says this this tyranny always leads to. Um, Some really evil stuff. He says, the only thought that should be stopped, he said, is the thought that stops thought. That's really interesting to think about. Um, There's a thought that stops thought, and that's the only thought that should be stopped. (laughs) So he's basically saying that there's something that we should be uh, adamantly concerned with our children growing up to think And that's the thought that stops thought. And I believe that there's nothing that stops the pursuit of truth like the idea that truth is just relative and subjective. It basically teaches our children that there's no reason for them to pursue truth because in the end they get to decide. And is there anything more harmful to teach your children than there's no reason for them to try to know the things that are knowable? Like that, there are things in life that are opinions and preferences, and some of them even worthy of discussion. But that if, but that we need to teach our children the most important and fundamental things about life are actually verifiable facts. Like, here's the most important one like, who God is, and who we are, and what God has done for us, and how he calls us to respond are actually verifiable truths. This is essential. Like, we are dooming them to a life of purposeless, at least intellectual, maybe worse, slavery to the powerful if we don't teach our children that objective truth is available. It is there. So, So just as an encouragement action step here, we need to vehemently stand up for the truth, capital T, and particularly stand up for the verifiable fact that objective truth is knowable. Okay, so that was first observation, right? Second observation with the book of Judges, Um, and and this is uniquely Christian. If you're not a Christian, you're going to listen to this, and and maybe you'll be a little frustrated at first, but please stick with me. Um, Only the truth of God is sufficient to lead to true human flourishing. Only the truth of God is sufficient to lead to true human flourishing. Okay, So right off the bat, you might argue that, hey, if we do what's right in our own eyes, we might develop a solid moral framework over time through human reason that might be sufficient enough to protect each other from harm and and cause human flourishing. Like, why do we have to have God for that? And the book of Judges is a perfect example of why human reason doesn't work on its own. A, the book of Judges shows that the only time of peace that Israel experiences at all is when they finally do return to God and the truth that he's revealed. Like every other phase of the cycle is some sort of oppression or evil that people do to each other or perpetrate on one another. It's it's just perpetual. And then B, Judges shows that when human beings use their best moral reasoning apart from the truth of God, that they are susceptible to foolishness at best and Great malevolence at the worst. <laughs> like, Judges is a, is a case study on how human reason being removed from the foundation of God's revelation and truth really leads to some of the worst stuff. And, and I want you here to be careful because you might be uh, thinking, well, yeah, that's back in Judges. That's the ancient days. That's barbaric times. And I, I want you to be careful of what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery. It's when you look back at uh, older times and think, yeah, but they weren't civilized um and, and and all you're pointing out is that now currently in our civilized society that we have more of a bedrock foundation on truth that has led us to understand these things so you're only making my point and and also i would venture to say that those truths are most if not all rooted the ones that are worth their salt are all rooted in the truth that god's revealed to us in his word so that's an argument for another day but nonetheless uh let's let's be careful of the chronological snobbery here like like if we were put ourselves back in those times, we more than likely would do the same things, if not worse. So let's think these, th- these two things through. So you got uh, on one hand a reason and on the other hand a revelation. There are two ways to arriving at truth. Um, the First one, reason. The Enlightenment developed the idea that, listen, we can figure all of the, these things out or figure out truth with a capital T out without God. We just need our minds. We just need to reason through it. Um, things like the scientific method are developed and we're able to uh, use human reason to find uh, objective, verifiable truth through uh, experimentation uh, and data and basically the, uh, the repeatability of results, right? Now, the irony, of course, to this is that The Enlightenment; these men and women are standing on revelation, whether they were willing to admit it or not. They are standing upon revelation of the truth about God, and this is still true today. You know, much of uh, the reasonable folks in the world uh, who who reject God are are um, basically cutting a limb, cutting the limb off that they're sitting on by doing so. But that's one hand, right? The the reason where we take our our cognitive faculties and we logically develop. you know, a thesis, and then we try that thesis, and then uh, over time we develop synthesis, right? So thesis, antithesis, uh, synthesis, you know, whatever. You know, that's, that's one way to look at it. Scientific method is another. But nonetheless, it's basically taking human logic. Another way, uh, and this is for the Christian, the bedrock is revelation. Like, God has revealed himself to us, and in particular, he has revealed himself to us in word format uh, in a book. And that book is the Bible, that God tells us in a book and reveals to us what he's like. And, and since he is the I am, uh, our existence, our, our very existence, and human flourishing, I might add, is contingent upon him. So, therefore, learning about him is the only basis through which human beings can find themselves uh, at peace. Not only at peace, but flourishing. Not only um, flourishing, but in any sort or sense in relation to reality. Um so, of course, most importantly, the Bible tells us about redemption. It tells us about reconciliation in Christ. It's the core truth upon which the Bible stands, and it's the core reality of the universe is that, you know, that God has created man and that man is fallen and that God has made a way to reconcile man back to God in the person and work of Jesus Christ so that we might be full, fully human again in him. Um this is so much the core truth of revelation that Jesus calls himself the truth in the book of John. He says, I am the truth, capital T, basically saying that the truth is embodied in Jesus. Um, Now, listen, I want to say this doesn't mean that Christians don't utilize reason. Of course not. Like Christians are told by Paul even to let their reasonableness be known to everyone. (laughs) In other words, Christians should be known as the most reasonable people on the planet earth. Now, I'll say that tragically that hasn't been the case and it's particularly doesn't seem to be the case based on, um, you know, how popular culture views Christians today. You know, we're just a punchline on South Park for the most, most of the time and now basically a punchline in, in every way. But, um, but listen, human, I mean, Christians should be the most reasonable people on the earth. And and this is not because we stand on human reason as our foundation and then we try to understand the world around us or God for that matter, but It's because we stand on revelation or we stand on the word of God. And then we look out at the world using reason as a tool under the authority and in submission to God's revelation. And this is how we interpret and understand the world. So we don't abandon the foundation or the word of God. Because we understand that that's the way to destruction. That's what the book of Judges is really all about. They abandoned the word of God or God's revelation. And once they do that, they step off of the firm foundation from which God had planted them. And ultimately, they begin to devolve. It's always the pattern. So, um, I want to close with with one of the more intriguing stories In the Gospels, I would say maybe the most intriguing story in the Gospels, and it's a dialogue between Jesus and the governor of the province in Jerusalem, Pontius Pilate. Um, It's it's recorded that at the time of uh, leading up to Jesus' crucifixion, like he's being dragged before all these various tribunals and courts, you know, and um, he goes from the Sanhedrin uh, to Pilate and then from Pilate to Herod, and then from Herod back to Pontius Pilate. And and ultimately, Pilate is basically handed the task of making a ruling or a judgment about the innocence or the guilt of the Son of God. It's like, wow, okay. Um, he has Jesus Christ in his courtroom, and as the governor in service to the empire of Rome, he must make the decision as to whether or not he will set Jesus free because he's innocent, or whether he, Jesus will be beaten and condemned to die for his guilt uh, in criminal activity against Rome. I mean, talk about pressure, intensity. I mean, wow, what a moment, right? And, uh, you know, the courtroom being this this symbol of human justice, and now Jesus is tried in, this, in the courtroom of human justice. Uh, and and this, this interaction with Jesus is just incredible, They go back and forth. They discuss, you know, all the different topics we've discussed so far in this podcast. Um, Pilate keeps going in and out of the room, like haggling with the Pharisees and the crowds, telling them, I don't, I'm not finding any guilt in this guy. Why don't you just punish him according to your law? They keep coming back and saying, listen, we can't punish him according to our law because only the Romans can kill. And it's at that moment that Pilate's like, oh man, they're out for blood here. They really want to kill this guy. Uh, And so, you know, it goes back in and, and Jesus... And Pilate begin to discuss uh, power and authority, and then ultimately they'll get to truth. So Jesus is accused by Pilate. First and foremost, uh, he asks him, you know, like, are, are, are you king? And Jesus says uh, in, in one in, in John's recording, he asks him, like, are you asking me this or are people telling you to ask me this? Uh, another gospel will have Jesus say, like, well, you've said so. Or that's what they say. And, and, and Pilate gets really frustrated with this. He thinks that Jesus is being cavalier in the face of death. He, he reminds Jesus. He says, hey, don't you know I have the power and the authority to either let you live or die? It's interesting. He, he tells him, hey, I'm the one with the power here. Uh, I'm the one with the authority here. I get to d- like basically have the final word on justice. And, uh, and Jesus is having none of it. He kindly reminds Pilate, like, hey, listen, all authority and power that you currently wield has been given to you by God alone. Like basically looks in the face of this guy and says, you are operating on borrowed authority from God. And, and Pilate, you got to imagine Pilate here. He's looking at this Galilean who's he probably just views as a peasant, a peasant teacher. And, and he's just, he, he thinks he's got all of the upper hand. You would think that Pilate has the upper hand in this inter- interaction. And it it's like, he never actually is the superior in the conversation. Um, Pilate then asks him about his identity. He's like, so are you the king of the Jews or what? Um, Admit your crimes. And Jesus is not going to have any of that. Instead, Jesus is going to say, you know, listen, my kingdom is not earthly. And he's going to talk a little bit about power here. He's going to say, listen, if my kingdom were earthly, don't you think my disciples would have already drawn swords? Now, that to me is a really important point that Jesus is making. Like that power is not evil. Inherently, power is not evil, but that power actually is a character attribute of God. Like God is a powerful, all powerful, omnipotent, and that God wields his power to protect and care for his people and also for the glory. This is primary for the glory of his name. So it's, it's intriguing, right? Like Jesus doesn't just say like power's nothing. He actually says like, I have the power. My kingdom's not of this world. If it were, this would already be over. Okay, so then, like in this moment, Jesus says, hey, but I'm not, I'm not using my power. I'm laying it down. In the book of Luke, it records that Jesus had looked at the, the guards and told them, why do you come out against me here at night? And why didn't you arrest me during the day? And then he says this line, uh, you know, but this is your, your hour under the power of darkness. So Jesus had given, laid his power down and let the powers of darkness rule here. Uh, Pilate totally misses the point and goes, ah, so you are a king. <laughs> and, and then this is the moment right here. Jesus then peers into this man's eyes and, and I try to put myself, I try to paint the picture here in this Roman tribunal. Jesus has already been beaten, bloodied, you know, probably arrayed in, with a crown of thorns on his head. He's talking to uh, this governor, this procurator. And Jesus peers right into his eyes and and I, I just picture it like piercing the soul of Pilate. And he says this, like, I have come to testify to the truth. Everyone who listens to my voice is of the truth. Like, there's that word again, truth. Jesus believed and Jesus embodied absolute objective truth. There's no way around that. It is impossible to stand as a Christian and not believe that there is objective truth that is not dictated on the basis of power, but instead that is embodied in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That God tells the truth because he is the truth. And what I love about this is that Jesus then does something that I think every Christian should take as a as a example. He then invites Pilate into this by saying, listen, everyone, listen to me, Pilate. I don't know if you're asking me if I'm a king or if it's coming from somebody else, but you need to listen to me. If you can hear me, everyone who listens to my voice is of the truth. Do you hear me? Everyone, who, everyone, including you, Roman governor, he's inviting him in. What a humanizing moment, right? And then, of course, Pilate sadly and tragically looks at Jesus and cynically says, huh, what is truth? That sentence sums up the cynical Mantra of our society, in my opinion. So much of our culture, so much of our society, having seen the brokenness and fallenness that sin creates, and having having you know been disappointed time after time from you know promises made by people in authority, have just become so deeply cynical like Pilate that they look and scoff and say, huh, what is truth? Truth's just what you powerful people say. Uh, No, you know, truth is just whatever you say that it is. Like when earthly leaders and authorities let them down time and time again, they're compelled like Pilate to basically reject the idea of objective truth at all. And Pilate sadly doesn't wait around to hear the answer of Jesus, but looks at truth embodied in the eyes and walks away. And I want to encourage you, Christian, um, you know, Providence, if you're listening and remind you, The Christian is not bound to this kind of cynical view of life. Your children are not bound to this kind of cynical view of life. We have a responsibility to ensure that our kids in the next generation grow up knowing that there is objective truth and that it's good news. Like the book of Judges reminds us what this kind of thinking leads to. This kind of cynical thinking that there's no objective reality and everyone can just do what's right in their own eyes It leads to destruction, it leads to hurt, it leads to pain, it leads to abuse. In the worst cases, it leads to the most unimaginable suffering that human beings uh, could ever face. But to embrace objective, verifiable, absolute truth, namely the truth of God, is a path to abundant life and human flourishing. And I just want to encourage you, it starts with you, it starts with your family, and you will inevitably be a blessing to those around you too. Like Christians must stand for objective truth. And and then, and hear me on this, and then make the offer of the gospel obvious and clear to others around you. Like in a world of cynicism and uncertainty, there is absolute truth. And guess what? That absolute truth, he has a name. His name is Jesus. I want to thank you so much for listening to this edition of the Provcast. Um, Listen, for more information about Providence Community Church, visit our website at providencetx.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, uh, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, give us a five-star review. Uh, Once again, we just want to say we appreciate you so so much for for listening and especially to this week's episode. And until next time, uh, we just want to remind you to go now and share the love of God that's been shown to you. Love God, love people. We'll see you next time.